Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist, and I'd like to welcome you to episode 96 of This Week in FCPA for the week ending March 30, 2018, the opening day edition. This Week in FCPA is sponsored by Affiliated Monitors. Founded in 2004, Affiliated Monitors provides professional independent integrity monitoring and ethics and compliance assessments nationally and internationally and across almost all industries. With its knowledge of effective ethics and compliance programs and cultures, Affiliated Monitors is is respected for its work as a corporate monitor on matters ranging from multinational corporations to small and mid-sized companies and even individuals. Having served in over 700 monitorships, no one has more experience as an independent monitor than the team at Affiliated Monitors. For more information on how an independent monitor can help improve your company's ethics and compliance programs, visit Affiliated Monitors at www.affiliatedmonitors.com. In this episode, Jay and I take a look at some of the week's top ethics and compliance stories, including the Kinross Gold Corporation FCPA enforcement action, an article in the Wall Street Journal, which asked, did Exxon structure a deal in Liberia to avoid FCPA liability? We take a look at Canada unveiling its version of deferred prosecution agreements. I uh, look back and reflect upon the Caremark decision over the past 20 years based upon an article by Donald Langevoort in the Harvard Law School Forum on Corporate Governance. Uh, We talk about uh, the risks of anti-corruption enforcement in China based upon an article by Eric Carlson in the FCPA blog. Jay and I talk about our upcoming speeches and... Jay reviews the Affiliated Monitors presentations from the recently concluded SCCE European Compliance and Ethics Institute. This Week in FCPA is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back again with my good friend and colleague Jay Rosen for another episode of This Week in FCPA, episode 96 for the week ending March 30, 2018. The opening day is finally here edition. So, Jay, uh, yesterday we had the uh, opening day of baseball. Uh, The Houston Astros began their campaign for a wire-to-wire repeat of their world champions. Unfortunately, they were on the road up at uh, Texas, uh, the Texas Rangers, but they did – they beat the Rangers. And they're coming home to Houston on uh, Monday when we're going to unveil the first World Series banner to ever fly over the city of Houston. Uh, other than that, is anything helping in the, the Rosen Ranch? Well, um, you know, I, I don't want to be a disgruntled chowder head after uh, one game already, but your former bench coach, Alex Cora, uh, just got a first taste of what it's like playing for the Red Sox, and he was six outs away from his first managerial win. The Sox were up 4 nothing. Oh. And they ended up losing six to four. So, uh, uh, not that the season's over, but somebody mm-hmm. remarked that uh, when you play in Fenway Park, it's such a fishbowl, and the fans treat it like every game is the seventh game of the World Series. So, some people respond to that pressure and thrive, and some people just can't uh, can't sit in the kitchen. So, we'll see. But I am not giving up hope yet. So are you telling me that uh, even after three World Series, you still have a, the lingering um, uh, 
curse of Babe Ruth and still have low self-esteem and low self-respect around the Red Sox? Uh, I, I'm, I'm not personally saying that, but I think, would think some folks uh, may feel that way. Well, <laughs> you know, at least you weren't out there trying to, to put a, a, a nail file on the ball uh, in front of uh, the world television audience to, uh, to get a leg up, because I know no one in New England would do that. No one would do that. No one would deflate their balls either. There you go. Well, Jay, we had, a, I thought, a kind of an interesting week in the ethics and compliance front, so why don't we um, perhaps jump right into it. Uh, we had an FCPA enforcement action uh, to start the week with Kinross Gold Corporation, but it was an FCPA enforcement action where there was no evidence of bribery or corruption. Uh, it was the um, ubiquitous SEC accounting records provision. FCPA enforcement action, if that's not an acronym mouthful, where uh, the company uh, did not have proper internal controls and um, did not have uh, uh, accurately count on its books and records. They paid some uh, $950,000 for uh, fine and penalty for their uh, lack of, uh, of internal controls and books and records violations. But I, I found it interesting because I thought there were uh, four key lessons uh, the first was um, Kinross purchased uh, two mines. They're a mining company. One was the Tasist mine in Mauritania. The second was the Chinaro mine in Ghana. And the company had identified uh, potential uh, payment problems uh, in the pre-acquisition process, but did not move to timely address the adequacy of internal accounting controls at the new business use after integration. There were some internal controls lessons because there was a, a real failure around internal controls uh, at these mines, really uh, not having meaningful internal controls around uh, rebates, discounts, advanced payments, government commissions, and unjustified business expenses. There were lessons for internal audit because the company's internal audit group was able to determine the internal control deficiencies, both in an initial and a follow-up audit, uh, yet they were not able to um, implement a set of uh, a fun present and functioning internal controls uh, that were maintained. And then there were uh, senior management lessons, which perhaps is the biggest lesson here, which is that uh, senior management, um, did, although they did require internal controls to be remediated, they didn't stay on top of it uh, to make sure that the uh, internal controls were both present and functioning, or rather they were present, but they didn't um, – um, make sure they were functioning. And then when there were two instances of potential uh, red flags, management overrode internal controls uh, in the sale uh, of product and in the retention of an agent. So I thought some very good lessons learned, uh, really because it was not a bribery case and focused directly on these four areas that I talked about, but particularly in internal controls. Anything that you were able to draw uh, interesting, new, or different from the case? I think you uh, you pretty much uh, got it surrounded, Tom. My only question, which I didn't see addressed in the article, is did any of this really move up to the board level or was the fact that management ignored the red flags kept this from getting up that high? So we didn't see evidence in the uh, SEC cease and desist order of board involvement. We did see specifically senior management taking a role, number one, in, in – uh, 
requiring that internal controls be remediated, but also on the negative flip side was the override of internal controls by uh, senior management when it suited them. Okay, so that 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 would be my only question. Uh, uh, on a little sidelight, I'm revisiting some ancient history, and I'm reading a book about Michael Eisner called the uh, Michael Eisner and how he lost the king, the keys to the kingdom. And this pretty much looks at his career from starting at um, ABC and rising all the way up to running Walt Disney. And at one point, they were looking at the board's composition at the Walt Disney Company. And out of 16 board members, uh, 12 of them were considered independent. And among the independent board members was uh, Michael Eisner's um, uh, lawyer, uh, the school teacher for his kids. So one of the points they brought up was how could that uh, board actually determine uh, independently Michael Eisner's uh, compensation. So I guess uh, boards are on my mind, and that's why I uh, diverted us for a second on that. Uh, let, let me get us back into uh, our next story. This comes to us from Sam Rubenfeld uh, out of the Wall Street Journal. Uh, and Canada has announced a new method for its prosecutors to tackle corporate crime. Uh, there is a remediation agreement regime modeled on a tool that we know very well here in the U.S. and the U.K., uh, the dreaded or the celebrated deferred prosecution agreement. And under the Canadian DPA, criminal charges are dropped after a period of time if an organization complies with the terms of the deal Penalties typically would involve a fine and the imposition of a compliance monitor who reports to the government. Uh, the only issue that seems to be is that since this is so new in Canada, they don't actually have a reporting mechanism how to do this. And um, what happens is, uh, uh, you know, uh, one of our colleagues, John Boscariol, uh, was quoted in the article, and it says, Canadian enforcement of its anti-bribery law has been quiet in the past few years following some activity earlier in the decade. And he said, this is in part because there wasn't a deferred prosecution re regime to cover corporate misconduct. And here's the key part. There is no formal mechanism for companies to come forward voluntarily, disclose violations, agree to pay a fine, and then avoid conviction. Anytime a company comes forward, they risk a situation where there needs to be a temp penalty. And the only way to get that is through conviction. So um, I think right now the groundwork has been laid, but uh, an actual path to getting a DPA and incentivizing a company uh, needs to reveal itself over the coming days. Uh, anything you take out of this article, Tom? So, um, first of all, kudos to uh, uh, Canada for joining the uh, um, the modern day uh, world's enforcement actions through deferred prosecution agreements. And I agree with John that uh, there's no formal mechanism for companies to come forward uh, voluntarily and that this, um, anytime you don't have one, it's a risky situation. So this uh, uh, hopefully will move towards uh, getting that in place and bring Canada into uh, kind of the modern uh, modern era of uh, anti-corruption enforcement, giving the Canadian authority a full toolkit to um, uh, 
police this area. I would note, Jay, that Kinross Gold Corporation is actually a Canadian company. They have uh, some assets on the U.S. Um, or they're listed, co-listed in the U.S. market, but uh, they're a Canadian company, and they could well have uh, been prosecuted uh, uh, or perhaps got a DPA. So uh, interesting that uh, Canada is finally uh, joining the modern world of uh, uh, anti-corruption enforcement through uh, the DPA process. Bienvenue, Canada. Yeah. So um, the extractive industries and another Canadian company uh, figure heavily in our next article. And uh, this is how Tillerson's Exxon designed an oil deal to skirt anti-corruption scrutiny. What's this one about, Tom? So let's just can we just kind of state for the record that when your company is on the front page of the Wall Street Journal, uh, albeit below the fold, with an article asking if it enga- has engaged in bribery and corruption, it's not good, uh, which is what we've awoke to this morning. Uh, Scott Patterson, Bradley Olson, and James Grimaldi uh, did a, a, a excellent reporting job on a deal that uh, Exxon did offshore Liberia. And there were initial concerns uh, by Exxon about violating the FCPA because the owners of the rights to this offshore block were either uh, unknown ultimate beneficial owners or known members or former members of the government. They owned a company called Pepper Pepper Coast Petroleum. And Pepper Coast Petroleum owned uh, Block 13 oil rights. So Exxon did not want to pay for these oil rights directly to Pepper Coast Petroleum. So somehow a Canadian entity uh, named Canadian Offshore Petroleum purchased the rights, um, 100% of the block rights from Pepper Coast Petroleum. And then they simultaneously turned around and sold 80% of those rights to Exxon. So Exxon had no direct contractual relationship with Pepper Coast Petroleum. Now, for those rights, Exxon paid the National Oil Company of Liberia um, $120 million. And then here's where um, some actions came in that may have been called into question. The National Oil Company of Liberia paid Pepper Coast Petroleum uh, some $68.5 million of the $120 million. $45 million went to employees of the Liberia Finance Ministry as bonuses for doing work on this project. The National Oil Company of Liberia kept $5 million, and then they um, repaid a loan to uh, EcoBank, a bank in um, Africa, which provided bridge loan um, funding. Uh, and this EcoBank made $1.5 million in fees. So we have a situation where uh, Exxon is paying money to a state-owned enterprise, uh, perfectly legal under the FCPA. Then uh, monies from the National Oil Company are being distributed to individuals in the government, in the financial uh, finance ministry, and a large amount is going to uh, either Pepper Coast Petroleum or to repay a loan that uh, the National Oil Company of Liberia took out to uh, uh, buy these rights uh, or somehow pay Pepper Coast Petroleum. So um, 
lots of questions here. Uh, Jay, uh, I'm sure you recall that the FCPA uh, prohibits bribes or offers to bribe of anything of value to a foreign government official or an employee of a state-owned enterprise for the purposes of obtaining a benefit. Uh, It does not prohibit payment to a foreign government. So uh, we've had uh, several declinations where that issue came up and uh, companies uh, got a pass. So um, in terms of FCPA, this really takes it a step further because uh, the article, which was based on documents provided to the Wall Street Journal by Global Witness and independent reporting by the Wall Street Journal, uh, suggested that um, this Pepper Coast, Pepper Coast Petroleum was a front company for uh, uh, government officials from uh, Liberia to line their pockets, and that the uh, bypass mechanism was this Canadian overseas petroleum. Under the FCPA, um, I can't really say that, uh, based on what I know now, that this structure was, was not legal, meaning illegal. Uh, we have Exxon paying the National Oil Company of Liberia. Now, we do have the National Oil Company of Liberia turn around and, turning around immediately and paying money. But that, I don't think, is what the FCPA was designed to prohibit. And for the U.S. government now to... Um, prosecute a company under this fact pattern, Jay, I think would be taking uh, FCPA enforcement in a, uh, a new step uh, that has not been taken before. So um, uh, this is actually the type of structure or close to the type of structure which Shell and E&I, the Italian national oil company, have gotten into trouble around in um, Italy, or perhaps I should say the transaction where uh, Shell and E&I paid the uh, government of Nigeria, and then the government of Nigeria turned around and doled the money out, uh, which may have been for bribes or may not. But uh, that's a different type of anti-corruption issue than is typically faced under the FCPA, which is a direct payment or a direct uh, uh, offer or direct um, payment or offer of anything of value if it's not cash. So uh, a really interesting um, fact pattern uh, at this point, but like I said, based on what I know, I'm not seeing an FCPA violation. That does not mean this is right. It does not mean um, because you can do something that's legal and doesn't mean you should do it. And it does point to perhaps a larger problem in the extractive industries, uh, particularly in other industries in Africa, which is the looting of the company countries is not just taking money, which was due to the countries. The looting of the countries is by uh, uh, ceding the extractive minerals and ex- uh, rights to extract minerals to government uh, officials who can then sell them later. So basically, you have theft of natural resources from the company from the country, uh, and then those are being sold. That's a different problem than the FCPA was designed to uh, remedy. And like I said, I think uh, if the U.S. government prosecuted under this set of facts, it would be a a more aggressive prosecution than we had seen in the past. But I have to get to the punchline, Jay. Okay. Punchline is when Exxon drilled the well, they got a dry hole. No extractive minerals were taken out by Exxon and they lost the rights to this block. So much like the uh, fellow driving the Hummer who took me out on a bicycle, 
who had no insurance. The punchline is <laughs> Exxon didn't get anything out of this, except now they got a big old headache from being on the front page of the Wall Street Journal. So uh, the sub-headline here says, the big driller was excited about offshore prospects in West Africa, but worried about issues regarding U.S. anti-corruption laws. So if a case, can case be made if they decide that this was, uh, this design was uh, intentional to have like a two-step transfer of the money? Uh, according to your read, that would still be kosher under the FCPA? Well, right now, it's still legal to pay money to a foreign government. Um, what the foreign government does after that is really up to the foreign government. We've never seen a enforcement action or a prosecution where a company was prosecuted for paying money directly to a foreign government. And that's really the defense of Shell and E&I in the Italian criminal prosecution. They, their position is we paid the Nigerian government. What the Nigerian government did with the money after we paid them is not our business. It's not our concern. And further, it's not illegal. So um, um, it does open a potential can of worms, but uh, it sure makes Exxon look like um, something was up. Got it. So next we have uh, an anniversary article from the uh, Harvard Business Review, I believe. And it says, Caremark and Compliance, a 20-year look back. So what do you take out of this one, Tom? So first of all, Jay, it's from the Harvard Law School, not business school, the Harvard Law School Forum on Corporate Governance and Financial Regulation. And it's an article posted by uh, uh, Donald uh, Langevort, who is the Thomas Aquinas Reynolds Professor of Law at Georgetown Law School. And he took a look at a 20-year anniversary of Caremark, which is the uh, seminal decision which uh, stated that uh, companies, uh, boards of directors had to pay some attention to compliance. Uh, now, it was a pretty de minimis uh, paying attention to compliance. Nevertheless, it started the uh, the roller coaster for boards becoming more involved. And his law review article uh, addressed three possibilities for greater uh, board involvement uh, than even is required under Caremark. Uh, first is uh, the question of how much to invest. In compliance, uh, Caremark makes this a matter of business judgment, but uh, subsequent uh, securities law rulings have really expanded that. Uh, second is reporting, uh, how to deal with warning signs, when you should report to the board, when to escalate to the board. Uh, once again, Caremark did not speak to this, but uh, that's a, a, always a question uh, of when do you get to the board, how do you get to the board, and should you go to the board. And then thirdly was... Um, the really the where I think we are now, Jay, which is it's not compliance uh, policies and procedures. It's really a cultural uh, turn is what the author calls it. But it's the culture of compliance. So is the board setting a proper uh, culture of compliance? Uh, that's obviously much more than tone at the top, but it's such things as properly incentivizing senior management to have uh, compliance resources in place, making sure your company culture is is more do the right thing than do the legal thing, and a wide variety of, of things simply beyond the, the technical aspects of a compliance program. So it was a very interesting article. It was a great review of the Caremark decision, what it meant then, and, and how uh, uh, the requirements on boards of directors have really evolved uh, going forward that I commend to uh, anyone interested in this topic.
Great. And we've got that link to in the uh, show notes, both the uh, abstract and the full article. Um, next, our colleague, Eric uh, Carlson, who's uh, one of the folks like Tom, who writes for the FCPA blog, uh, says that we can expect more anti-corruption enforcement in China. And uh, <clears throat> there's going to be there's um, some consolidation of different Chinese anti-corruption agencies that are happening. And um, there's going to be super enforcement agencies targeting government officials. Uh, historically, the anti-corruption uh, enforcement had been spread across multiple agencies, including the National Supervision Commission, the NSC, which was formally established this week, combines the functions of the CCDI, the Central Commission for Disciplinary Inspection, the Ministry of Supervision, the National Bureau of Corruption Prevention, and the General Administration of Anti-Corruption, all into one, uh, one co combined uh, uh, ministry. And uh, basically, there's um, a lot of acronyms and uh, a lot of different agencies, but what Eric seems to see is uh, with this uh, trade war that's heating up uh, between the U.S. and China, that uh, there could be uh, definitely increased um, attention paid to certain U.S. companies who are offering in China. And um, it's, you know, definitely going to be uh, a time where if you have issues in your operations over there, it might be a good time for you to take a look at uh, what you're doing and what can be done, especially because the Chinese government, I'm sure, would relish any opportunities to bring anti-corruption uh, charges against any American companies operating there. Um, Tom, did, did I do a pretty good job of doing the high level on that? You know, I think so, Jay, and I would just really reemphasize your last point, which is with this downturn in the U.S.-China relationships, uh, Trump moving to uh, what appears to be a trade war with China, uh, that it certainly could mean more enforcement actions against U.S. companies. And uh, in addition to uh, uh, everything you said U.S. companies need to do, it really drives on the point, Jay, that uh, risk is uh, not static, it's dynamic. And it's a wide variety of risks. This, this would probably fall under political risk or maybe economic risk, but it's certainly bleeding over an anti-corruption risk. And if uh, your organization is doing business in China, your risk profile, I think, just shot up. And it's something that you need to be cognizant of. I absolutely right, I, or I absolutely agree with you that you need to take a, a thorough scrub of your Chinese operations. But remember, they operate on a very different legal system than we do. And so what may appear to be a clean operation from the United States perspective under the FCPA may be very different than um, in China. Uh, so there's Chinese domestic laws that come into play uh, that you need to be cognizant of. Uh, and um, if there are uh, any persons or third parties or uh, entities that you've done business with in China that aren't squeaky clean, uh, now would be a very good time to, uh, to try and uh, remedy that. Uh, and the last thing I would just say is uh, if you have any questions, I'd just call Eric Carlson. Uh, he is a, a native Mandarin speaker. He's been practicing in China uh, for, I think, at least 10 years and maybe longer. Uh, he's a great guy and, and works at Covington and Burling. 
so he's a smart guy and he knows his stuff. So if you're doing business over there, I think your risk really just jumped up. And as a compliance officer uh, or chief compliance officer or compliance practitioner, you need to certainly be aware of your surroundings and have a dynamic uh, risk modeling profile. Awesome. <clears throat> so um, you've got another new podcast, Innovation and Compliance. Why don't you let us know what's happening there? And uh, uh, the handbook's coming out too. So uh, what's the news on that front, Tom? So, um, yes, uh, we put up episode two this week on uh, innovation and compliance. Had James Gellert, the uh, CEO of Rapid Ratings, a uh, uh, company that takes a look at the financial health of third parties. Uh, it's uh, Continue to be a very successful podcast if you're interested in innovation in compliance. This is the podcast for you. Next week, I have Ben Lachlan, Lachlan, who talks to us about the use of both big and small data. So it's going to be uh, continue to be a cutting-edge series. I've got some great podcasts uh, in the can already that are lined up to go. Um, so I hope you'll check that out. It's available on the FCPA Compliance Report, iTunes, Libsyn, uh, YouTube, and uh, on JD Supra. The uh, my book, the Complete Compliance Handbook, is still scheduled to be published at the end of April uh, by Compliance Week. Uh, you can check out uh, information on it on my website, uh, www.fcpacompliancereport.com. If I could, Jay, I'd like to take a minute to talk about. Our colleague, Jonathan Armstrong, who's coming to Houston, who on April 10th will be putting on a GDPR workshop uh, hosted by the Greater Houston Business and Ethics Roundtable. If uh, you need to know something about, if you do business in Europe, you better learn GDPR. And there's nobody better to teach you that than Jonathan Armstrong. If you're a lawyer, uh, it looks like we'll have three hours of continuing legal education credit. So for 75 bucks, you certainly can't beat that. If you're a Gerber member, it's for free. And then uh, I'm speaking uh, later in April in three roundtables on behalf of Conversant. Uh, the first is April 4th in Miami. The second is April 17th in Houston and April 18th in Dallas. And Jay, I'm really excited because on those uh, events, I'm going to talk about using data to drive ethics to the center of your business. So it's going to be a little more uh data focused and I hope that uh, I'll be able to tell a great story around the use of data in a best practices compliance program. From the uh, uh, affiliated monitors perspective, anything uh, upcoming that uh, you can tell us about? I can give you um, a couple updates on the just completed uh, SCCE, uh, ECEI, so the European Compliance and Ethics Institute. It was just um, held in Frankfurt over the weekend and earlier this week. Uh, Jonathan Armstrong was there uh, from Affiliated Monitors. My colleague Eric Feldman was there and my colleague from Spain, Maria Astigaraga. Uh, Eric and uh, Thomas Topolsky presented a session on independent assessments of your compliance and ethics programs. And this was a uh, instance where we had the uh, monitor uh, presenting together with the monitor so it was uh, interesting to get a perspective of a live case and see what's happening. Um, a couple things that Maria wanted me to highlight is there was a session on Sapin 2, 
presented by Marie Lancry and also uh, Andre Bywater, Jonathan's uh, colleague at Corgery Compliance, stepped in. And basically, they took a look at um, how SAPENDA is handling deferred prosecution agreements. And basically, they said that DPAs are something very new. And both prosecutors and lawyers have to learn to collaborate because they are not used to doing this. And that there is also some resistance from judges because they think that a criminal offense must always be condemned. So this is uh, a situation where actually instituting the DPAs lies somewhere in between the uh, model we use here in the U.S., where um, the judges allow the ruling from the regulator to stand and uh, the different uh, perspective is if you swing all the way to the UK uh, version of a DPA, where the judge definitely has oversight over the um, final resolution. And Maria also said there was a very interesting presentation taking a look at millennials and compliance. And millennials want to make an impact in the world. So ethical companies with good compliance programs will have an advantage in millennial retention. Uh, in terms of things on the conversive front, we don't want to uh, appear to be laggers next to uh, uh, the compliance evangelists. So my colleague Eric Feldman is uh, going to be collaborating with Autumn Sinelli over at Conversant, and they're going to be uh, putting on a webinar this coming uh, Wednesday, April 4th, uh, 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Mountain Time. And uh, basically, the, the headline is that in the past five years, more than 200 DPAs and NPAs have been finalized. Companies that demonstrate a corporate commitment to proactive ethics and compliance typically fare better in enforcement actions. Better can mean a civil remedy, lower fines or penalties, and in sometimes the best outcome, avoidance of an independent monitor. So we're going to take a look, uh, while you're going to be doing some data-driven things with Conversant, we're going to be looking at basically uh, how you can use uh, proactive monitoring to put your company in a better position uh, should they need to go in front of the regulators. So, Jay, uh, I think that wraps us up. Uh, you want to take us home? Sure. Uh, on behalf of Tom Fox, the compliance evangelist, and myself, Jay Rose, and Mr. Monitor, we'd like to thank you for joining us for episode 96 of This Week in FCPA, the opening day edition. We hope you have a wonderful weekend, and we look forward to speaking to you next week about all things ethics, compliance, and FCPA. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of This Week in FCPA. If you have listened to this podcast on iTunes, I would greatly appreciate it if you would rate our podcast as it would help in our rankings and also help get the word out about the only weekly wrap-up of all things ethics and compliance in the podcast world. If you have any questions, you can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. You can email Jay at jrosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode of This Week in FCPA. I hope you'll join us again next week where we review the week's top compliance and ethics stories. This Week in FCPA is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.